about to start a new series today. You see it on the screen, Fragile, How to Handle Your Relationships with Care. And I'll start with an obvious question. I actually do want you to raise your hands because misery loves company. And so I want you to raise your hands as I ask this obvious question of how many of you would say 2020 was a tough year? Come on, raise your hands. Yep, good, good, good. If you're not raising your hands, please tell us your secret. We want to know. Uh, and so that one of the, the things that kind of went south in 2020, according to statistics, is our relationships. Now, relationships can be hard enough on their own uh, without all of the craziness that we had last year, but when you add a, a pandemic and when you add economic loss and when you add financial instability and when you add a, a divisive election and when you add racial tensions and when you add all of those things, how many of you know it made for a great holiday with our in-laws, right? And so we, this morning, want to start this series on our relationships. And and I, I do want to let, let you know that we're going to hone in this morning on your favorite of all your relationships. We're going to talk about your family relationships. One of our core values here at Saints Community Church is that we're empowering families. By the way, if you're newer to this church, just to let you know, we have five core values here at this church. We want people to experience God. How many of you have already felt God this morning in some way, shape, or form as we worshiped him and, and praised him? We also uh, want to embrace diversity, look around the room, and be grateful that Jesus brings all kinds of people together, right? And so we're so glad about that. We also want to excel in generosity. I'll be preaching about this in a few weeks, but I do want to give you some good news. We not only hit our goal for kingdom builders last year, we went over our goal for kingdom builders last year. Come on, somebody. We gave over $40,000. All of it has been given away. And we're going to talk about all of those projects that we gave to and the great meetings that we had and how we blessed people overseas and here in our city and, and really, really did some great things. So we want to excel in generosity. We want to empower families. And we want to make sure that all of those are happening at the same time. And this morning, we're going to hone in on your family relationships. But here's the deal. When I say family, when I say that word, it brings to light many different things for many different people. You may be here and you may be part of what we call a regular kind of, of family where there's a mom, there's a dad, there's maybe one, one and a half kids, a little dog, you know, something like that. So you're a part of maybe what looks like kind of a normal family, but, but family has changed much in the last decade or so, or, or even longer. And so you may be here and you, you may, when I say the word family, you may be thinking about your nuclear family that you, you grew up in. Maybe you're still a part of that nuclear family. You, maybe you're, uh, maybe you were adopted. Maybe you think about a, a step family or a step parent that you have grown up with or grandparent that raised you, or you may be thinking of all different forms of family. So how many of you know in all of those forms, what we want is to have healthy family relationships? How many of you would agree that you want to have healthy family relationships? But here's the issue. It's, just, it's not a matter of whether you have a dysfunctional family, because let me give you news to everybody here in the room. All of us in some way, shape, or form have a dysfunctional family. Hello? It's just that some of you are a little more dysfunctional than others, okay? 
but we all come and have a dysfunction in our family. So what we want to do is we want to dive in and talk about your family relationships. And we're going to do that by looking at one of the craziest, most dysfunctional families you've ever seen in your whole life that's actually found in the Bible. Now, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read four different texts, and they're going to seem random, but I'm going to tell the story to kind of tie them all together here in just a few moments. But let's read the text together first. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. So if you didn't catch it there, he's in love with the sister. Let's move on to 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Let's move on to the third text. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Let's look at the last text, 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 32 says, but Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother said, my Lord should not think that they killed all the princes, only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. Let's talk this morning from God's word about our family dynamics and our family relationships. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray, God, that this, Lord, word from your word would be applicable. It would be a right now, right here, applicable word for our lives. That no matter what family member or members that we have, Lord, that we are in tension with right now, that everybody in the room would receive something this morning, God, from your word that they can place into their life and create life change. Lord, we lift you up as the hero. Lord, this is not about me. This is about you and about your word changing lives. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Well, our story this morning really kind of starts off talking kind of in in some fashion or shape or form as sibling rivalry. How many of you have a sibling? Raise your hands if you have a brother or a sister in the room. Uh, any solo people that you, you were the only child? Raise your hands if you're only, it's, only, it's okay. Wow, everybody in the room has siblings. Okay, so you're all under, gonna understand the term sibling rivalry. How many of you that raised your hand that had a sibling that you know that there, is, there was some form of sibling rivalry in your house. Raise your hands if you had some. How many of you were mean to your sibling, okay? Let me ask this. How many of you were older? You were the oldest in your house. That's me too, okay? So the older ones are the mean ones in the room. And how many of you are the younger ones, okay? And how many of you would just wave at me if you were like, they picked on me? Yeah, they picked, yeah. So, yeah, so you understand what I mean by sibling rivalry. I have a, I have a younger Sister, she's here this morning. We have a great relationship. Love her so much. Shout out to you, Angie. But our relationship hasn't always looked as good as it looks today. Uh, when we were little, we both kind of found our roles in the house. And uh, basically, my role was to cause trouble 
in whatever way that I could cause trouble. And her role was to be the angel, the perfect one, the goody two-shoes. And really her main job all throughout our childhood and our younger years was to tell on me for whatever I happened to be doing. Now you can hear a little bit of bitterness in my voice, but I promise we're over it. We're good now. I love her. But I do want to talk about a time that I was able to really kind of come up in this sibling rivalry and just a, a story. I don't remember a lot of stories about my childhood, but there is one that I remember about my sister and I. Uh, one of the things that I always wanted to do was to get her in trouble because I kind of spent so much time in trouble, I wanted to get her in trouble. And if injury was to happen because of the trouble, that was like a bonus type of thing, you know? And, and so I remember one time we had these huge pine trees in our, our yard growing up and and one time we were actually kind of getting along that day for a few minutes and we climbed up this tree together and I convinced her, we were about 25, 30 feet in the air, I convinced her that it would be really fun if she jumped off of the branch that we were on and if she you know, would go straight to the ground and see if she could land on her legs. So how many of you know, even for a convincing guy, that's not an easy convince, right? And so it took me about a half hour or so going back and forth, and we had a lot of time on our hands that day. And so finally, after about 30 minutes, I convinced her that she was going to be able to land on her feet and convinced her to jump off that tree. And as she jumped off that tree, she didn't land on her feet. She actually fell, and she sprained her ankle. And again, what I set out to do is get her in trouble and cause injury to her got me in trouble and caused injury on my backside to me, okay? We've all had these stories in our homes. Maybe it was about your sibling. Maybe it was about somebody else. And I could tell fun stories, and I'm sure if I pulled all of you up here, we could all tell fun stories about growing up, maybe sibling rivalry, rivalry or other stories in our home about growing up. But then there are stories that just aren't funny. There are situations, there are relationships that maybe had tension when you were growing up, and possibly that tension still exists today. So here's what I want to do before I dive into our text this morning. I want you, instead of thinking about this sermon as a distant, far off, talking about these generalities in family, I need you to get someone in your head a relationship, a specific relationship that there is a little bit or maybe more than a little bit of tension in your family right now, okay? So listen, don't say it out loud. Don't tell your spouse. It could be your spouse, okay? It, it, like, but get that person in your head. How many of you have your person? Raise your hands if you go, okay, I know who it is. I know, I know who, come on, raise your hands if you, I, I know who it is. There's, it could be a little bit of tension. It could be a lot of tension. I can't move on until we've all got that person. How many of you would say, okay, I can name somebody that I've at least got a little bit of, of tension in our relationship? Raise your hands. Let me see them high, okay? Okay, good. So, so here's the question. You can go ahead and throw it on the screen for me. The question is, who is it in your family that you may have, may be in an unhealthy relationship with? In fact, you can move on to the next slide. We're going to do this whole thing today as a fill in the blank, okay? So here's what I want you to do. Everybody look up at this chair. See this chair? I want you to place 
the person in this chair. I want you to go ahead and think about whether it's an aunt, an uncle, a sibling, a step-sibling, a mom, a dad, a son or daughter, a sibling in your life, maybe some an, an in-law, a, a son-in-law, a daughter-in-law, a, a father-in-law, a mother-in-law, and those are you know fresh because we just got done with Christmas. And so you look at those and you go, okay, I've got somebody in this chair and that's who I'm talking about in your life today. That's who I want to help you with today. I wanna help you with those relationships that are the most tense in your life. Now let's dive into this story. And the, here's the first thing you gotta know about this story. The Bible starts off just by, by letting us know that some time has passed. In other words, we're diving into this story right in the middle of the story. If you go two chapters earlier in the story, here's what you're gonna discover happened in this family. There's a guy named David. We know him as King David. This is the same guy that, we, that wrote Psalm 23 that we studied last year. The same guy that was a man after God's own heart. The same guy that God anointed to be king. He falls into, has a moral failure. A major sin happens in his life because he, he falls in love or gets excited about one of his best friend's wives. He sleeps with her. Her name is Bathsheba. And then he has this man who actually serves in his army. He has him killed. And that happens before we dive into the story that we are. So there's already some tension and some things happening in this family with dad, with King David, that is going to create some tension down the road for the rest of the family members. Let me just side note and say this. This isn't even in my notes. This is what we call a green stamp bonus, okay? Parents, listen. Your kids are watching. And the things that we have in our life will be repeated. Hello? Okay, let's move on because some of y'all didn't like that. So we'll move on. So David has these kids, he's obviously kind of indulgent towards his kids, and the Bible says where we pick up in the story is that one of his son's names is Amnon. And Amnon falls in love with his sister. And, and the Bible says, and it's a long series of texts that I'll kind of put together here, that he goes to one of his cousins, and one of his cousins schemes up this wicked, kind of evil scheme for Amnon to pretend like he's ill and to call his sister Tamar in, and when he calls her in, he actually is not ill, and he rapes her. Well, obviously, King David, the dad, is furious at this situation. But David, instead of being a good leader of the house and actually doing something about it, he just gets mad and he does what every leader should not do. He just, just kind of seeps in his own emotions and in his own anger and he does nothing about the situation. So this makes Tamar not only mad that she got raped, but then Amnon actually shames her and lies about her and says that she seduced him. And so she's sent away into hiding, she kind of goes away for the rest of the story, and, and so David still does nothing about this situation, so Tamar, in secret, goes to her other brother, his name is Absalom, everybody say Absalom. Absalom takes two years of his life figuring out how he is going to kill his brother Amnon for what he did to their sister. 
He schemes up this plan, and he comes up with this plan to, to get Amnon drunk, and he actually gives, Absalom gives his, his guys a charge. Let's look at it together, 2 Samuel 13, 28. He said, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Have not I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So they kill him. And David finds out, and again, he's furious. He's so mad that David actually wants Absalom killed for killing Amnon. And so Absalom has to go and he flees. He leaves for three years. He's running from his dad and his dad's army until eventually he's, he keeps trying to get in to see his dad, to see King David. And, and he, David wants nothing to do with him. He doesn't even want to see him. And, and he finally says he threatens to burn all of David's fields down. And that gets his dad's attention. And through a, a long series of events, they have a meeting and their relationship is restored. And the story would be great if it ended there but the problem is that Absalom gets jealous of his dad's kingdom and he begins to scheme how to steal away his dad's kingdom and he begins to meet with people in secret and he begins to figure out how he can take over his dad's kingdom David at one point has to run for his life he's running from his son Absalom and then eventually Absalom is killed now if you didn't get all that Watch me do it in 60 seconds, okay? Amnon rapes Tamar. Tamar is in hiding and in shame. Absalom then kills Amnon. Amnon that then is dead. And Absalom, I forgot where I was. And Absalom then has to go, Absalom has to run from David. David's mad at Absalom. Absalom is running from David. Finally, they meet. They're restored. Then David is, is about to get his kingdom. I'm losing my spot here. He's about to get his kingdom stolen away from him. And Absalom has to run for his life David has to run for his life that Absalom is killed so the story ends with Tamar is missing Amnon is dead Absalom is dead and David has really got a messed up family and how many of you would say my family feels a little less dysfunctional at this point I mean you want to talk about dysfunction this story's got it all insecurity pride anger rebellion rape lust it's got it all and then God has the audacity to say in his word things like this, Romans chapter 12, verse 19, don't quarrel with anyone. Be at peace with everyone just as much as possible. To which some of us say, yeah, right, God, you don't know my family. But God wants us to have healthy relationships. I want to give you four keys this morning that we see in this story. And this morning what we're gonna do is we're gonna flip the story on its head and we're gonna talk about what they did wrong and we're gonna flip it up to what we need to do right in the story. So if you're taking notes, which I know all of you wanna better your relationships and better your families and none of you have a photographic memory that I know of, so you're gonna to wanna to take notes this morning, but I wanna give you four keys, four secrets to your family relationships. And remember, we're not just talking about general family, we're talking about whoever is in the chair, okay? Whoever is in that, that relationship that you put in the chair, here's the secret to beginning to get healthy in that relationship. Here's the first thing. 
Learn to see past your own anger so you can see their, whoever them is, pain. Learn to see past your own anger so you can see their pain. Listen to this verse. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 20. He, meaning Absalom, hated Amnon because, everybody say because, okay? Because he had disgraced his sister, Tamar. How many of you have ever heard the term, hurt people, hurt people, okay? Here's what I want to encourage you to do. What we've got to do in our family relationships is we've got to start looking at the because. What happened to that family member, not not focusing on their behavior, but allowing ourselves to ask why they did what they did, why they act the way that they act, what happened in their life, what pain, what circumstance led them to lash out or to act in the way that they did. We've got to learn to look into our family story and go, you know what? I'm not going to just focus on their behavior. I'm going to figure out the because, the why behind the what. One time when I was on the road uh, traveling full time, uh, I had the opportunity to speak in a maximum security prison. Uh, that's a whole other interesting story about me going in there and, and really I've spoken in all kinds of places. One of the only places I felt like a little bit of like the fear of God in me. And I remember when they came in, this is before I had a beard, they literally looked at me like, you're like 13 years old, you're gonna speak to us today, you know? Like, who is this kid that's gonna speak to us? But I remember these huge guys walking in and, 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 uh, and lining up, there was two or 300 of them that day, and they sat down and... They literally, there's no, no pretext. So the, there was no worship. There was nothing. It was literally like, okay, they're seated, and they hand me the microphone. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, Northup, if you've, if you've ever needed the Holy Spirit to come and help you, right now is the moment. You know what I talked to him about that day? I talked to him about the why behind their what. I talked to him. I, I told him, I, I don't want to just know what you did to end up in the situation you're in, I want to get to the why you did it. In other words, I want to get to the pain that caused you to sin. Because listen, here's what we do in our society and in the church. We separate sin from pain. And I'm here to tell you today that here's the cycle that happens in our life. Sin leads to pain, and then pain leads to what? More sin, right? which leads to more pain, which leads to more sin. And what I want you to do with your family members is I want you to do the same thing that I remember doing with those guys as I called them forward and these huge guys that could crush me with their pinkies were hugging me and I was thinking to myself, please don't hurt me, I'm a fragile man. And, and I remember them crying, not because of what they did, but be crying, crying because of the pain that was in their life that caused many of them to end up where they ended up. You ever taken the time to just survey the story of your family member and say, why 
do they act the way that they act? And here's what happens when we do that. When we take the time to learn people's stories, our compassion tank fills up for them. Hello? And so you this year, I want you to ask God for his compassion for your family member. Number two, we need to stop looking at their mistakes, whoever it is, fill in the blank, whoever's in the chair. Stop looking at their mistakes and take a look in the mirror to see your mistakes. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, when King David heard all this, he was furious and Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. So here's what you see in the situation with all these family members. You see all of these family members who are mad at other family members for their own behavior, but none of them are taking a look in the mirror at their behavior to see how they could have changed the situation. Hello? You don't see David saying, hey, maybe my moral failure and my bad example for my kids caused some of this. You don't see David going, hey, I probably should have handled this when it went south. I I should have led my family through this situation. If I would have, maybe Amnon wouldn't have been killed and Absalom wouldn't have to take things into his own hands. You don't see Absalom trying to, 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 to make make peace with his brother Amnon. You don't see Amnon going to Tamar and going to Absalom and trying to ask for forgiveness. You don't see any of the right behavior coming from all these people. Here's what you do see. You see blame, 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 and looking at the mistakes of everybody else when here's the deal, as a Christ follower, you're gonna find out the longer you walk with God that God has a great way of putting up a mirror in front of you and holding it up. Hello? And saying, hey, let's work on you. Let's take a look at you. But we are really great. In fact, I'm an expert at diagnosing everybody else's mistakes. How about you? I am great at looking at everybody else. In fact, we actually have names for people. Let me give you some of the names, and maybe one of your family members fits one of these names. There's actually names that diagnose people. So here's a name. It's called the tank. The tank is confrontational, pointed, and angry, the ultimate in pushy and aggressive behavior. Don't raise your hands if this is your family member. Here's another one. Here's one called the sniper. The sniper, whether through rude comments, biting sarcasm, or a well-timed roll of the eyes, makes you look foolish every so often. That is their specialty. Here's another one. The know-it-all. That one is pretty obvious. Let's move on. Lots of those in the room. The grenade. After a brief period of calm, the grenade person explodes into unfocused ranting and raving about things that have nothing to do with the present circumstances. How many of you have ever been around a grenade person? Raise your hands. Where all of a sudden, boom, an explosion happens and they're bringing up everything, stuff that happened 10 years ago and one time you didn't get my coffee the way that I like it and then you're going, that is nothing, I don't even understand what you, you know, 15 years ago, you know, you shut the door on my foot and you know, blah, blah. I mean, they're just going on. That's the the grenade, okay? Here's one, the whiner. That's self-explanatory. Let's move on. 
Last one, the lockbox person. This person will hold on to things forever. It could have happened in 1982, and to this day, they refuse to move on to forgive, forget, and be mature. Hello? That's the lockbox person. See, we're really great at diagnosing everybody else's issues. What about our own behavior? And let me just say this. This is one of the reasons why a small group, and not just a small group, but a good small group will help you. Because a good small group, here's what a good small group does. A good small group begins to call out each other's stuff. Hello? A good small group actually says, hey, dude, I don't think your wife is the issue. I think you got issues. Hello? And why don't you try leading your house before you point fingers at your wife? I'll never forget years ago when one of my small group members, I had confessed something in my small group, and I had just gotten done preaching on a Sunday morning, and I had said something, and one of my small group members walked up to me after church and said, hey, I noticed something that you said from the pulpit that didn't match what you had confessed in our small group, and I'm going to call you out on the carpet, and I'm going to tell you, you got to man up, you got to be better, you got to do better, and I, I kind of bowed up like dudes do at first, like, come on, man, what you, I just got done preaching, God's word, I'm the pastor, you know, who do you think I is here, you know? And, and he said, I don't care who you are, you confess this in small group and you got to do better. And I walked away and I thought, that's a good small group member, right? Your small groups this year are going to help you fix much of your own mistakes and your own behavior. If you're not in a small group, I just gave you another reason to be. Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 says, Jesus said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Number three, stop scheming for evil towards that person and start scheming for good towards that person. 2 Samuel 15, verse 12, while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithopol, whatever that name is, the Gilanite, David's counselor to come from Gilo, his hometown, and so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. This is an example of when Absalom was trying to take over the kingdom from his dad, and he's scheming. Everybody say scheming. Here's what you're going to see in this story. You're going to see a whole lot of scheming. Everybody is scheming. Everybody's trying to scheme on how, I mean, we're talking about serious scheming. How to take the kingdom away from my dad scheming. How to murder someone scheming. How to rape someone scheming. You're going to see all of these different plans that are devised and these schemes that are devised and all of these people that are scheming. But here's what you don't see in the story. You don't see people scheming for good towards each other. Hello? You don't see people saying, hey, I'm going to scheme, figure out how, what way I can bless that person. What way I can love that person. What way I can help that person. Here's what I want to encourage you to do this year. I want to encourage you to do some good, old, healthy scheming towards that family member. 
I want you to sit down and put a plan of attack together. I want you to think about how can I be a blessing to that person that that tension exists within that relationship? What could I do? Maybe, maybe I should be calling them more frequently. Maybe I should be sending them gifts. Maybe I should figure out how to be a blessing to their life. Maybe I should donate something to them. Maybe I can figure out how to scheme. Everybody say scheme. God wants you to scheme for good. Here's what I want to help you understand. Watch the generational pattern that happens in this scripture. Okay? Watch this. Jesse schemed. He was a schemer trying to get everybody but David to be king, and so he schemed. So then what happened? David schemed. Amnon schemed. Absalom schemed. Do you see what happens in families, how things get passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation? So here's the deal. Some of you may have an anger issue here in the room. There is a good chance that one of your parents had an anger issue. And there's a good chance that their parents had an anger issue. And that their parents had an anger issue issue. See, we think we pass things down from generation to generation, but I got news for you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ in the room, God has called you to put a stop to those generational things in your families. He's called you to say, the buck stops here. The anger will not go past me. It will not be passed on to my son or daughter. It will not be passed on. The alcoholism stops here. The critical spirit stops here. It stops with me. It stops, the buck stops with me. God has called us to scheme for good. And then number four, God has called us to place Jesus at the center of your relationship with that person instead of sin. Place Jesus at the center of your relationship instead of sin as the band comes. The first family drama that we see in the Bible is all the way back to, in Genesis. It goes back to the beginning. Remember Adam and Eve? Some of you know the story that the serpent, Satan himself, tempts Eve and, and Eve eats of the, the fruit. And then you know, she goes to Adam, her husband. Some, some people, you know, theologians have said, man, you know, it had to start with the woman, you know. And, and here's my question. Where was Adam? Why wasn't he leading his house? Hello? And here's what you got to understand. When sin came into the world, it didn't just affect every single one of us personally it also affected our relationships. See, you may not understand it, you may not grasp it, but at the center of many of our relationships is sin, insecurity, pride, jealousy, envy, anger, hatred, bitterness. Those are all words that equal the same thing, sin. And so we've got these sin issues in many of our relationships with our families, 
And here's what I'm calling on you to do. I'm calling on you to, instead of having sin at the center of your relationship, I'm calling on you to to erase the bitterness, to erase the hatred, to erase the anger, to erase that from the tension in your relationship and to place Christ at the center of your relationship. Here's what the Bible says. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, that would be Adam, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Look this way, friends. That one man is Jesus. And here's what I'm calling on us to do with our families this year. I'm asking you to place Jesus at the center of your relationship with your spouse. I'm asking you to place Jesus at the center of your relationship with your son, your daughter. I'm asking you to place Jesus at the center of your relationship with your in-laws. Place Christ at the center of your relationship, whatever, whatever relationship is that tense relationship that I called on this morning. I promise you, if you'll say, I'm gonna let go of pride, insecurity, jealousy, bitterness, anger, hatred, strife, I'm gonna let go of that. Instead of that, I'm gonna put Jesus in between us. Here's the great thing. Jesus, guess what he does? He has an incredible way of bringing people together. Doesn't he? Before I became a Christ follower, and some of you may be here and go, you know what, Pastor, I uh, talking all this language and talking about these Bible stories and all of this stuff, and the truth is that I, I don't even know if I really have a relationship with God. Maybe you came to church this morning and somebody invited you or you maybe wanted to start the new year right, so you came in here on this first Sunday of the new year. By the way, everybody in this room has perfect church attendance for 2021. Isn't that awesome? Perfect. But you may be here I don't know how to place Jesus at the center of my relationship because Jesus is not at the center of my life. So how do I place him at the center of my relationships if he's not the center of my life? I spent five pretty intense years away from my relationship with Jesus. It's amazing when your life is self-centered and self-focused, it's amazing how south your relationships, how quickly they go, isn't it? It's amazing. And I look back at that time of my life and I see tension in all of my relationships. Tension with my sister. Tension with my mom and dad. I mean, I, I was... A very rebellious child. I remember my mom and dad serving Jesus. They've been Christians, I don't know, most of their life. Seems like they came out of the womb worshiping God, you know. And 
Because of that, I hated my parents. I, I wanted nothing to do with them. Ripped up Bibles in front of them. And our relationship was tough. It was tense. But I remember the day that I said, the night that I said yes to Jesus. I gave my life to Christ. And it wasn't like, you know, I'm just coming to church to get a good feeling. It wasn't like I'm, I'm here for therapy. It wasn't like I'm just here for the friends, for the club. It was like a transformational night where everything changed. By the way, church, could we pray for a bunch of those to happen in this church this year? Like I'm talking about real conversions. Like where people actually understand that they're sinners in need of a savior, hello? And they turned towards Jesus. And everything changed. And that night, everything changed for me. And I remember knocking on my mom and dad's door. They were in bed that night when I got home. It's always an awkward moment when you go into your mom and dad's room and they're in bed and dad's in his underwear and all that stuff. But anyway, one of the vivid things I remember about that night was I looked at my mom and dad and I said, Mom, Dad, I gave my life to Jesus tonight and I want you to know that our relationship is going to be different from here on out. When you place Jesus at the center of your life, you then have the ability to place him at the center of all of your relationships. I want you to close your eyes and bow your head all across this room. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, I'm not right with Jesus. He's not at the center of my life. The Bible says this. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then it goes on to say, the wages of sin is death. So the Bible talks about a physical death and a spiritual death, that we're all going to die someday and that we're all going to go somewhere when we die. Jesus wants all of us in the room to go to heaven. But when we don't have him at the center of our life, he weeps over those that choose to go to hell. And the Bible says that he demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. He gave his life for us. Here's what I want to make clear this morning. When you give your life to Christ and you place him at the center, it is not just because you want a better feeling. It's not just so you can be more moral. It's not just so you can join a, a, a better group of friends here at the church. What you are saying is, God, I'm not okay without you. In fact, I'm a sinner headed for hell and if I don't turn towards you away from my sin and allow you to begin to shape and change my life, my life won't look different. So this morning, if you'd say, I need Jesus at the center, or I need to start out 2021 by placing me at the center again, if that's you, I want you on the count of three to lift up your hands. One, two, three, lift up your hands. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Anybody else? That's me, Pastor. Let's stand to our feet this morning. I want to give you about 30 seconds. I want everybody just to close their eyes. 
And I want you in your seats, the five of you that lifted up your hands, I'm going to ask you this morning to close your eyes, and I want you, I'm not going to pray, I'm not going to lead you in the prayer like I usually do. I actually just want you to surrender your life over to God, and I want you to actually tell God, I, I need you, I'm a sinner, and I'm in need of a Savior. And I want to make you the center of my life. Just go ahead and talk to him right there at your seat for about 30 seconds before we pray and close and dismiss.